So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project, look at the resources they have on the website and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we're going to be talking about sepsis in the realm of obstetrics and gynecology. So, Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So today, we'll review the definitions and understanding of sepsis, um, risk factors associated with sepsis. Then we'll talk about signs and symptoms that should prompt a sepsis evaluation. And then finally, we're going to talk about evaluating and managing the critically ill patient with sepsis with a particular focus, again, on pregnancy. So, Faye, one of the things that's changed recently in the realm of sepsis is actually how we even define sepsis. Yeah, absolutely. So, as listeners, you may remember sepsis 1 and sepsis 2 definitions, but we are actually going to be talking about sepsis using the 2016 Third International Consensus Definition for Sepsis and Septic Shock Task Force, or sepsis 3. So, this organization describes sepsis as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. So expanding from this, septic shock is newly defined as a subset of sepsis in which underlying circulatory and cellular metabolism abnormalities are profound enough to substantially increase mortality. The way that this definition differs from the previous definitions is that it moves away from the former SIRS criteria that we've previously had, which stands for systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which then evolves into this spectrum of sepsis, severe sepsis, and then septic shock based on the degree of vital sign abnormalities, response to resuscitation or organ dysfunction. These changes were because there were changes with regards to how we understand sepsis as a heterogeneous syndrome. Also, this is because the SERS criteria was pretty poor in terms of ruling people in and out for sepsis. 
So Nick, talk to me a little bit more about what this life-threatening organ dysfunction means. Like, are, what are we using to judge that criteria of life-threatening organ dysfunction? Yeah, so kind of with the old sepsis 1 and sepsis 2 definitions, there were a number of laboratory values and things that we'll review momentarily that are still somewhat used today um, with the sepsis 3 definitions. But sepsis 3 ushered in kind of a new type of scoring system, so to speak, for the severity of sepsis and septic shock. The long version of this is known as the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment, or SOFA tool. Um, SOFA is a dynamic scoring system. You basically take somebody at their baseline, and then you want to look for a change in two points or greater in that SOFA score in order to define sepsis. There's a big table of things that looks at stuff like respiration based on PaO2 to FiO2 ratios, platelet values, uh, bilirubin levels, hypotension, a Glasgow coma scale, and a creatinine. Again, we'll post the table on our website. It's not worth kind of talking through that here right now. But again, it just kind of distills the sepsis valuation down to those criteria to, again, describe a severity level. But what about pregnancy, Nick? I mean, I feel like for a lot of our patients, they'll come into triage and then they'll trigger that sepsis bug simply because they're pregnant and so their white count's a little bit high, they're breathing a little bit more quickly, their heart rate may be a little bit higher than normal. Is SOFA, does that take that into account? So it's a really excellent question, actually. So SOFA has not been validated to be better than any other tool in pregnancy. And actually, there's a lot of question marks as to its validity even outside in terms of is it that much better than SIRS um, or the old system, the sepsis 1 criteria. And actually, a lot of the quality measures in sepsis still use the SIRS criteria um, as the defining feature of the quality measure. So it's important to still be sort of facile in both of these things. But SOFA, in some ways, is highly valuable in the ICU setting. In pregnancy, though, it still remains to be seen, and there may be a pregnancy SOFA score or something in the future. There are pregnancy-associated sepsis scores, things that are like the MUSE or Maternal Early Warning System, the SOS or Sepsis and Obstetrics criteria. Um, There's a number of those that have been evaluated, but really there's not a surefire tool that beats one over the other. The other thing to know about in sepsis or SOFA is the Q-SOFA or the quick SOFA criteria. Um, quick SOFA is really easy to distill down and has actually been validated in an emergency department population. So a Q-SOFA of greater than 2, which the three criteria are respiratory rate greater than 22, a systolic blood pressure less than 100, and altered mental status or a GCS less than 15, any two of those three increases your mortality somewhere on the realm of three to 14-fold in an emergency department population. Again, QSOFA hasn't been validated in pregnancy. There's a really interesting abstract presented at SMFM about the SOFA criteria or QSOFA criteria, that is, and modifying those for pregnancy. So again, hopefully in the future, we're going to be starting to see better modifications of this that pertain to pregnant patients in differing physiology. Faye, let's move on from definitions now and get to risk factors for sepsis. You know, sepsis in and of itself necessitates a suspicion for infection. Um, but what should we be thinking about? Yeah, so there are a lot of infections that are particular to our patient population, whether obstetric or gynecologic. Common etiologies may include things like urinary tract infection, pyelonephritis, 
chorea amnionitis or endometritis, um, wound infections and necrotizing fasciitis, potentially septic abortions, toxic shock syndrome, and ruptured tubo ovarian abscess, to name a few. Obviously, our patients can become sick and become septic from uh, the same reasons that non-obstetric and gynecologic patients can also become sick from. Um, so we want to make sure that those other things are also not, um, not forgotten. Just a side note about risk factors that can predispose patients to mortality from sepsis and septic shock. Um, these include things like pre-existing organ dysfunction, particularly renal, hepatic, or cardiovascular disease. Um, and in pregnancy, additional risk factors include things like multiple gestation, cesarean delivery, use of assisted reproductive technology, public insurance or lack of insurance, nulliparity, and black race. So not only is it important so that we know what are things that predispose patients to becoming septic, we also need to think about what are those things that put them at higher risk of death. Okay, Nick, so I mean, we certainly need to think about these things that put people at risk for increased mortality and increased risk for sepsis. But let's say someone rolls into the emergency room, what are the things that we need to do in order to evaluate them and then ultimately manage them? Yeah, so when you see somebody who is septic or in septic shock, you know that they're on the precipice of critical illness or they're already there. Um, so evaluation and management in somebody with suspected sepsis should proceed simultaneously. And so there's a number of things that you can do to accomplish that goal. These recommendations that we'll present are recommendations that follow both the Surviving Sepsis Campaign as well as the SMFM statement on sepsis and pregnancy that's definitely a worthwhile read. In our hospital, we actually use an acronym to try and help remember the most core of these values. That's called BLAST, so B-L-A-S-T, so you can remember BLAST sepsis away, um, to again help you do the evaluation and the management of sepsis at the same time. So we'll start out with the B and the L because they kind of roll together. B is for blood cultures and L is for lactate or laboratories. So again, in your initial laboratory evaluation, you're going to be looking for things like leukocytosis um, or leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, and other laboratory abnormalities are going to help you stratify the severity of organ dysfunction and suspected sepsis. Lactate is part of this, and it's one that we always think about in sepsis. It at least partially results from a shift of aerobic to anaerobic cellular metabolism with poor cellular perfusion. You can think all the way back to glycolysis and the Krebs cycle and all that stuff, which hey, I don't think we need to belabor here. But No, I still have nightmares about the Krebs cycle. Let's move on. Yeah, let's just trust here that, again, it's at least partially a byproduct of poor perfusion. So it's an indirect marker of tissue perfusion. Higher lactic acid levels in sepsis have been associated with worsened outcomes, and some randomized trials, though not all, have demonstrated successful reduction in sepsis mortality using lactate-based resuscitation strategies. You should measure a lactic acid level within the first three hours of presentation for sepsis, and if elevated, re-measure it within six hours based on joint commission quality criteria. Um, and SMFM also does recommend lactate measurement for suspected sepsis in pregnancy. Blood cultures are also going to be important to obtain up front prior to the initiation of antibiotic treatment and are also part of these core quality measures. There's evidence even with just a touch of antibiotic exposure that blood cultures become useless. This will impair the ability to narrow your antibiotic therapy later on, potentially exposing patients to unnecessary costs, side effects, or broad therapy. Um, two sets of peripheral blood cultures with each set consisting of an anaerobic and an aerobic bottle is recommended. 
You should also culture any suspected infection site. So again, in obstetrics, we're often dealing with urinary tract infections. You should get a urine culture or a wound infection. You should try and culture the wound. And again, this will help you later on to narrow your antibiotic choice. So Faye, we've covered the B and the L, blood cultures and lactator laboratories. What's up next? So up next is A, which stands for antibiotics, which you already alluded to, Nick. Essentially, empiric antibiotic therapy should be broad in coverage and also uh, should be initiated rapidly um, as soon as possible, essentially, after cultures have been obtained. The SMFM consensus statement, the surviving sepsis campaign, and the SEP1 core measure all promote administration of appropriate antibiotic therapy within the first three hours of presentation. And we know that broad-spectrum therapy is recommended because it's estimated that mortality can increase as much as five-fold when sufficiently broad therapy is not initiated. Also, mortality risk in septic shock appears time-dependent with respect to antibiotic therapy based on observational data, though a randomized trial of pre-hospital administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics did not appear to improve outcomes. Antibiotic therapy, of course, should be narrowed when appropriate based on culture results. However, if cultures are negative or not obtained, then therapy should be de-escalated with respect to the patient's clinical improvement. Some people have tried combination or double coverage therapy for critically ill patients or neutropenic patients, meaning using two antibiotics to cover the same spectrum of pathogens, but this has been investigated and not thought to confer a survival advantage, and so this is discouraged. The only notable exception is is toxic shock syndrome from streptococcus. Toxic shock syndrome, or TSS, results from the production of exotoxins and classically has been described with things like a retained tampon in the vagina. The antibiotic therapy of choice in this case is a combination of penicillin um, as well as clindamycin because clindamycin acts as a transcription inhibitor um, in terms of the production of bacterial exotoxins. Oh, wow. That's really interesting, Faye. Yeah. So we've covered B, L, and A. What's next, Nick? So S is for saline, which is a simple way to try and talk about fluids, basically. Crystalloid fluid is the initial choice for resuscitation and severe sepsis or septic shock. There's limited data to take a look at the choice of actually using normal saline versus something like lactated ringers. There may be some benefit to using lactated ringers over saline, but the data is not super strong there. They don't recommend using albumin or other types of therapies because they tend to be more expensive and they actually somewhat may contribute to harm in these populations. The volume of fluids, how fast you administer the fluid, and the means by which to individualize or titrate fluid administration sepsis has really been a subject of intense scrutiny in critical care literature for a while and continues to do so. Initially, there was this study by the Doc Rivers um, that was published in the New England Journal back in 2001 that was established this early goal-directed therapy that placed central lines in everybody that came in with severe sepsis and looked at measures like MAP and CVP and central venous O2 saturations, showed that this very aggressive strategy of fluid resuscitation may confer a survival benefit. Fluid administered prior to randomization in both arms, the aggressive and the less aggressive route, was 20 to 30 cc's per kilogram over 30 minutes. And that's going to be important to remember because later on, 
there are three randomized trials performed in three different settings that then were meta-analyzed together that showed actually that this whole aggressive put a central line in everybody and watch hemodynamic status actually didn't confer a survival benefit. But all of them started with that 20 to 30 cc per kilogram bolus. And so the 30 cc's per kilogram bolus of crystalloid has become standard of care in sepsis therapy. Now there are studies that are ongoing right now looking at whether you should use less fluid or whether some people may benefit from earlier pressors or something, but we don't have that information right now. And obviously you worry in pregnancy because big, giving a big fluid load like you no know, three liters up front could be really aggressive and predispose somebody to like pulmonary edema. SMFM states that you, in pregnancy we recommend an, an initial bolus about one to two liters with additional fluid provided after that based on hemodynamic response. So again, 30 cc's per kilogram is probably what we should be starting out with, though studies ongoing. Faye, we've gotten through the blasts and now we need the T. So T stands for time, and this may be self-explanatory. Basically, we should be doing things in a timely fashion as quick as possible. So the step one core measure is predicated on two major time points. So time starting uh, at the time of patient presentation with severe sepsis or septic shock. And so there are bundle requirements that are set at three hours and six hours. And we'll be posting a figure of this so that you guys can take a look at it. We don't necessarily need to name all of them here. The entirety of our BLAST protocol covers the initial three-hour time point. The first thing we already talked about, which was antibiotics. There is a survival advantage um, with timely administration of antibiotic therapy in this window. There's also a survival benefit of early aggressive fluid resuscitation, which was suggested by the results of the Rivers trial. And as Nick said, that should be an initial 30 cc per kilogram bolus. There's also this reminder of the six-hour marker of the SEP one core measure. The measure first calls for a remeasurement of lactate if there is a diagnosis of severe sepsis or septic shock on presentation. Um, it also requires a reevaluation of hemodynamic status and response to initial interventions with septic shock. Um, and this includes physical examination, specifically documenting vital signs, a cardiopulmonary exam, an exam of capillary refill and peripheral pulses, and a skin exam. Alternatively, the reexamination may also incorporate um, any of the two uh, following dynamic evaluations. So central venous pressure measurement, central venous oxygen measurement, a bedside cardiovascular ultrasound, or a passive leg raise test. Um, for OBGYNs, likely the physical exam and passive leg raise are the most easily performed measures because we don't really do a lot of bedside cardiovascular ultrasounds and we don't really place a lot of central venous pressure measurements. What is a passive leg raise test? You basically take the legs on both sides and you elevate them to 30 to 45 degrees above the horizontal while the patient is laying down. This causes uh, an autotransfusion effect of about 300 cc's of blood from the legs to the chest. And after about two to three minutes in this position, the patients who are considered fluid responsive will have an improvement in markers of cardiac output, things like blood pressure and pulse rate. So their blood pressure should go up, their pulse rate should go down. Those who don't demonstrate improvement would then be candidates to be put on uh, vasopressors and potentially to be transferred to the ICU. Again, though, because we're OBGYNs, things are more complicated because in pregnancy, the passive leg raise is likely not useful because there is that uterus that's in the way causing aortal cable compression, um, which then may counteract this autotransfusion effect. 
So SMFM recommends continued bolus with a small fluid volume, 250 to 500 cc's, and close monitoring of the vital signs to see if the patient is fluid responsive. So at that six-hour mark for patients who aren't responding to fluids, they should be started on vasopressors per the SEP1 core measure. Norepinephrine is the primary choice in sepsis, both in and out of pregnancy, because its effects are primarily vasoconstrictive. Norepinephrine is associated with lower rates of arrhythmia and lower rates of overall mortality when compared with other vasopressors, and it does appear to be safe for the fetus, at least at low doses. Vasopressors are also preferentially given via central venous access uh, to limit the risk of extravasation and tissue damage should there be an infiltration of a peripheral line. However, there is, a mount- there is mounting evidence that peripherally administrated vasopressants are safe, and so if you are not able to get central venous access, this should not deter proper use of presser therapy. Okay, Nick. So sepsis is kind of your thing, and there's been a lot of research into sepsis, right? People have looked at things like steroids and vitamin C. What are some other things that we should be considering in terms of like evaluation and therapy for sepsis? Do those things help? Should we be doing those things? Because I have not given any of my patients who have sepsis vitamin C. Yeah. So Let's talk about a couple different things. So one is probably should be more obvious. One thing that is not talked about much in the sepsis guidelines is source control. Um, So achieving source control is going to immediately limit the amount of microbe or toxin that you have available, right? Like if you think TSS, like getting the retained tampon out is going to help. If you've got like an infected little hematoma or something, draining that is going to help. So that's an important part of the sepsis equation where we as surgeons have to think about the benefit of taking somebody to the OR, particularly if they're unstable. Overall, studies around source control have been kind of limited, despite the fact that this seems really logical. And obviously, for a number of reasons, there aren't randomized trials of immediate compared to delayed source control. But observational data suggests that in a way similar to antibiotic therapy, there may be a time-dependent survival advantage with respect to source control. The sort of recent sexier things have to do with what other medications can we give and what things can we find on the shelf that might be helpful with sepsis. As you mentioned, steroids, thiamine, and vitamin C have all come into the limelight of this is what maybe we should be doing for sepsis. Steroids have been controversial for a while, um, and you'll see people kind of use steroids almost as like a Hail Mary in a lot of sepsis treatment. You know, in very, very severe cases, if hemodynamic instability is still going on, they might use hydrocortisone at stress doses to achieve therapy against what's felt to be adrenal failure. There have been a couple of recent trials that have looked at the use of hydrocortisone and refractory septic shock. One of them found benefit. The other one didn't find benefit. So it's kind of tough to really know exactly what's going on with hydrocortisone. And probably there's a lot more on the individual level that needs to be evaluated. Thiamine and vitamin C are kind of the new sexy players, right? And we all think like, oh yeah, I pop some emergency or airborne or whatever before I hop on a plane. Like, why wouldn't that help out an infection? It makes me feel good. Um, And then there was a big observational study that was done in a before and after method that showed a massive reduction in sepsis mortality with the application of vitamin C. So there are a number of large randomized controlled trials that are going on or resulting now. Um, They all have kind of cute names. Most recently 
published one was the vitamins trial um, that looked at vitamin C and thiamine in, in uh, septic shock. There's also the oranges trial, the Victus trial, and the Axe trial. So all of these are potentially coming out soon. Um, the first one that was published, though, the vitamins trial, did not show any benefit to vitamin C. So I guess we'll just have to see on that front. Hey, let's talk a little bit more just to kind of end here on some additional recommendations in sepsis that might be unique to pregnancy. So outcomes data on pregnancies complicated by sepsis is limited overall. Um, we know that maternal death rates from sepsis are overall pretty low, though certain conditions such as H1N1 may have a higher risk for more severe illness or death. Because sepsis does cause this inflammatory response, we can reasonably assume that sepsis can predispose to preterm birth, um, which has been supported in a few limited studies. And additional maternal care recommendations include use of mechanical or pharmacologic uh, VTE prophylaxis, avoidance of hyperglycemia, and early enteral feeding. In terms of delivery timing in a patient who is pregnant and septic, this is probably a question that, you know, we get a lot, um, if, especially on the MFM service. Really, unless the patient has chorioamnionitis, sepsis is not an indication for immediate delivery. Um, the decision to deliver the fetus should be individualized with respect to the number of factors, including prematurity, maternal comorbidities, and fetal comorbidities. Improvement of the maternal acid base and hemodynamic status will often result in improved fetal acid base status. So the primary focus here really should be stabilizing mom, because if mom is doing well, then baby will do well. And then, of course, things that we know apply to all patients should still apply to patients who are septic and pregnant. So we should monitor their fetus while they're in the hospital if their uh, fetus is over 24 weeks of gestation. We also know that if you are going to be delivering a, uh, a fetus early, that corticosteroids for fetal lung maturity uh, should be given, and magnesium sulfate for fetal neuroprotection uh, should also be given. All right, Nick. I think we have covered the very large topic of sepsis in the OBGYN patient. Shall we summarize? Let's give it a go. So we started off talking about definitions of sepsis. And again, we went through sort of the changing landscape here, moving from the old, what we probably all learned in medical school were the sepsis one and two definitions. They use the SERS criteria evolving into the various iterations of a sepsis syndrome to now the simplified sepsis three criteria that defines sepsis as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by dysregulated host response to infection and septic shock, which is a subset of this with underlying circulatory and cellular metabolism abnormalities profound enough to increase mortality. We also discussed the new scoring system associated with sepsis 3, uh, which is the SOFA tool or the sequential organ failure assessment, as well as the bedside quick SOFA or the QSOFA, which both assess uh, the severity of sepsis and the risk of mortality. We do know, however, that these scoring systems have not been validated in pregnancy, um, and also the parameters established by both of these definitions and screening criteria may actually represent some normal physiologic changes in pregnancy. We talked a bit about risk factors and differential diagnoses. Again, risk factors in pregnancy includes the kind of possibilities of infections. So the common ones being UTIs, pylo, chorio, or endometritis, 
wound infections, septic abortion, toxic shock syndrome, ruptured TOAs, um, though don't forget about those non-OBGYN causes as well. Risk factors unique to obstetric populations that can predispose to mortality include pre-existing organ dysfunction, multiple gestation, cesarean delivery, use of ART, public or no insurance, nulliparity, and black race. We then talked about evaluation and management of the septic patient. So we know that a septic patient is almost critically ill or already critically ill, and therefore evaluation and management need to proceed simultaneously. We also talked about the quality metric SEP1, which um, is a bundled intervention that the Joint Commission and the Center for Medicare and Medical Services have gotten behind, and these have resulted in improved mortality and compliance with these recommended interventions. Because pregnant patients have been excluded from the SEP1 reporting measure, there may be slight differences in treatment recommendations for these pregnant patients, and these are based on consensus statement by SMFM. Um, and in our, our hospital, we use something called the sepsis blast to help uh, our doctors evaluate suspected sepsis. So we first talked about B and L. B, which is blood cultures, which should be obtained as soon as possible. We also talk about L, which is lactate and laboratories. We know that lactic acid is produced um, at least partially due to this result of this shift of aerobic to anaerobic cellular metabolism, which uh, happens in the setting of poor perfusion. And we also want other laboratories, things like CBC, to check for leukocytosis. The A in our BLAST acronym, again, you should use broad empiric antimicrobial therapy as soon as possible, ideally within the first three hours of sepsis presentation. Appropriate antimicrobial therapy should be directed ideally towards the suspected source, though also if source is unknown, you should have something that's sufficiently broad to cover a lot of different sources. Combination or double coverage therapy is not necessary, though one exception that's a nice question for the boards is with toxic shock syndrome. Again, TSS is resulting from the production of exotoxin from streptococcus, and so you should use a double coverage of penicillin and clindamycin to counteract the exotoxin production. S stands for saline, and there have been many studies that state that there is a survival benefit to giving rapid fluid administration early on. So based on the River study in 2001, fluid administration was uh, 20 to 30 cc's per kg over 30 minutes. Subsequent studies have shown that we do not need to adhere to all of the River's criteria, including uh, central venous catheters and arterial lines. However, um, the surviving sepsis campaign continues to advocate for the use of aggressive crystalloid resuscitation to correct hypotension, which should be 30 cc's per kg, and this should be administered over the first three hours. The T stands for time, and just as a reminder, again, time is of the essence when treating sepsis. So within the first three hours, again, with all of our BLAST criteria should be covered. So you should get your laboratories and blood cultures and other cultures as needed. You should measure a lactate. You should start an antibiotic after that. You should be pushing fluid. Um, and all of that, again, done fairly quickly. The T also reminds you to reevaluate perfusion later on at the six-hour time point per the SEP1 measure um, by either remeasuring a lactate and performing a physical exam, that passive leg raise that we described earlier. If you're not responding to fluids, norepinephrine is where you should head next in terms of vasopressor therapy. can be given centrally preferentially but also peripherally if needed. 
The last things we talked about were source control and some other sexy new medications like steroids, thymine, and vitamin C. So source control makes sense to us. You should control the source of infection. So if you have a tampon that's causing toxic shock syndrome, remove that. Um, and if you have choreo, for example, then you should move towards delivery. Steroids have not been shown to give a mortality benefit um, in one study, and then in another study, it did seem to um, give a survival benefit. So right now, the uh, response to steroids is mixed, and there is no uh, absolute recommendation for giving steroids for sepsis. Thiamine and vitamin C have also been proposed, and there have been a few trials um, that are ongoing with regards to giving thiamine and vitamin C. However, the most recent study that was just published the vitamin study did not show a benefit. And remember, finally, those additional recommendations that are unique to pregnancy, noting that outcomes in pregnancy and sepsis are fairly limited in terms of the data that's available. Though you should think about mechanical or pharmacologic VTE prophylaxis, avoidance of hyperglycemia, early enteral feeding, and noting that certain things can cause higher death rates from sepsis, such as H1N1 influenza. Delivery timing does not change necessarily as a result of sepsis unless choreo is suspected. Again, you should individualize this decision with respect to maternal and fetal status. With respect to fetal monitoring, use it when indicated, though note too that a poor maternal hemodynamic or acid-base status is going to lead to a poor fetal hemodynamic or acid-base status. And so it can be tempting to jump on that, but also is important to remember hey, I should sit tight for a moment while we try to stabilize mom, which should be the priority here. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end uh, of our episode on sepsis in the OBGYN patient. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you like the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and on Patreon if you want to give us some support, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you need notes for today's show or any one of our past shows, head on over to CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to give us suggestions for future shows or correct anything from previous shows, give us an email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 